in some sense, the foundational relationship of domination and subordination is that human claim to dominate the world, literally the human claim to be able to own the world. And as you point out in your work, that starts with agriculture. And so as I made my way through all of these different issues over several years, it was not only the specific issue of the day that captured my attention, but the, the connections, the, the framework. And that's how it all comes together for me. Now, I think that makes perfect sense. Not everybody, of course, agrees with me. But I think that's the way to understand the modern dilemma, the, the way we have accepted this domination subordination dynamic as inevitable, you know, almost as natural. And we're not going to make much progress on any of it if we can't come to terms with our role in the larger living world. Welcome to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. This is a show for the curious and the concerned, folks who like to ponder big questions and aren't afraid to face big problems. Wes Jackson co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, an internationally renowned research and education center. He won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the Right Livelihood Award, often referred to as the Alternative Nobel Prize. He's a geneticist working to change not only the way we farm and feed ourselves, but also the way we think about how the world around us really works and where we fit in it. Retired professor Robert Jensen talks with Wes about his distinctive creaturely worldview and how to understand the past while imagining the future. Robert always prompts Wes to do what he does best, share distinctive and engaging stories about everything from his childhood to his quest to revolutionize agriculture. This is episode number seven. In this final episode of the first season of Podcast from the Prairie, Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen reverse roles. Jackson asks the questions about Jensen's new book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, Searching for Sustainability, which summarizes key ideas from Jackson's work over the past half century. Here's Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. I'm Robert Jensen. I'll be your guide into the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. I first bumped into Wes's work more than three decades ago, and his ideas have had a profound influence on my thinking about society and ecology. My conversations with Wes in this podcast will explore why that is and give you a chance to hear how his mind works, how Wes has cultivated the art of seeing small and thinking big. We're going to have conversations about global issues that begin with Wes's deep roots in the prairie, where he spent most of his life. Well, today, Wes, we're going to change it up a bit, and I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Robert. Well, here's a chance to get even. <laughs> I am going to be asking the questions this time. Our listeners ought to know that uh, Fargo, North Dakota, turning out a bold upstart, ends up at the University of Texas for nearly three decades, tenured, full professor, has had books on feminism, opposing what our government has done in sending young people to war, the university trying to kick him out even though he had tenure. This is not your run-of-the-mill lad from Fargo. Robert brings up many times 
uh, the name of his friend Copland. Let's just get started with that because I'm curious. What is extraordinary about your deceased friend? Well, that is a good place to start with Jim Copland because he had such an influence on me and because I probably would have never read a, a Wes Jackson book if it had not been for Jim Copland. Copland, he was 25 years older than me. He had uh, grown up on a farm in central Minnesota and uh, along the way had developed a kind of intellectual bent, went off to college, got a PhD, became a professor, but he retired early. And I met him uh, after he had left his university work. I was going back to graduate school and he was working in a variety of different community organizations. He was like me. He came from the Midwest. He came from a fairly conservative background and he had to make sense of the world with a radical analysis. And I think that's very much like you as well. Uh, you come out of a kind of conservative Midwestern background, but you've never been afraid to think radically. And so maybe that's the, the common thread here. Jim had come of age politically during the 1960s and 70s. He'd been through the civil rights movement in the South when he taught at Vanderbilt. He'd been through the anti-war movement. Uh, he'd had to, to reckon with all of those radical analyses uh, long before I did. And so I benefited from his experience. Jim and I talked about a lot of radical political ideas, but at the core of it was always his concern about ecology. Uh, I use a phrase often that we need to face the multiple cascading ecological crises of our moment. And that's a phrase that Jim used. I borrow it from him. And one of the early conversations we had about that involved the centrality of agriculture, of understanding the role of agriculture and ecological decline. And that's when he handed me new roots for agriculture and, and we were off to the races. Uh-huh. Okay, so that uh, pretty much takes care of uh, a question I had uh, of when you first learned about my uh, writing and the work of the Land Institute. And so um, this treasured friend of yours has put you onto it. But, uh, you know, that's not always good enough. Uh, I have a lot of people uh, that will recommend that I read this book. And, uh, you know, I'll read the book and uh, put the book down and think, oh, well, that was interesting and go on. So what did you think when you first read the writings that I'd put together about the Land Institute and other matters? Well, I, I should note that it wasn't just reading your writing. It was also listening to your talks. So Jim kept a, a, an extensive collection of uh, at the time, it was audio cassette tapes. This goes back to the late 1980s of speeches given by people he thought were particularly important thinkers. Uh, and he had a lot of Wes Jackson. Many of them were tapes from Prairie Festival, your closing homily every year at Prairie Festival. So it was not only that I was reading your work, but I was hearing your voice. And I think it was probably more your voice that put the hook into me. But I think the compelling nature of your work had to do a lot with the big picture analysis you were willing to embrace. You didn't just ask what's been wrong the last few years or the last few centuries. You know, you go back to what you famously call the problem of agriculture, the 10,000 year old problem of humans taking control 
of landscapes and, and typically doing a lot of damage, soil erosion, soil degradation. Well, that immediately made sense to me. I don't know why, because even though I'm from North Dakota, I'm not a farm kid. I grew up in town. I didn't know anything about farming, but there was something intuitively that made sense about your analysis. You're a, a master of the aphorism of a, a short phrase or sentence that encapsulates a big idea. And the aphorism of yours that always resonated the most with me was this idea that we are, ever since agriculture, a species out of context, that with our gathering hunting history for hundreds of thousands of years, all of a sudden we were settled down and growing food and manipulating landscapes which put us in both ecological and social terms out of the context in which we had evolved. The natural history of the human is mostly a gathering and hunting history. For whatever reason, all of that just fell into place and made sense to me. Uh, you know, I'd read environmental literature. I knew nuclear power was a problem. I knew chemical contamination was a problem. But there was something about your work that helped me put it all together. And uh, Copland was my introduction to that. He's the one who, who turned me on to you. And after that, your thinking was always a big part of, of whatever subject I was working on. It was a big part of my, my worldview. All right. You bugged me for years to write a book like the one that you finally wrote, uh, one summarizing those main ideas. Uh, why do you think I wouldn't do it? Uh, why did you do it? <laughs> what made you take that up? More than 30 years ago now, I first read your work. And for about 20 years, I was just a, an admirer from a distance. I was trying to get your ideas a little more widely distributed in the left progressive community. But it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I really started showing up at the Land Institute, coming to Prairie Festival, and engaging you a bit more. Then you retired from running the Land Institute day to day. I retired eventually from working at the university. There wasn't a place where a, a newcomer to ecological thinking could get your key ideas in one volume. I thought, well, it'd be great to have one slim volume where you reflected on your key ideas. And I remember I, I, I came to you one year and said, I think this would be a great project for you. And you smiled and listened politely when I gave you a tentative outline for that. And you said you'd think about it. And then the next year at Prairie Festival, <laughs> I, I had a slightly different outline. I think we went through that about three times, and I realized you weren't going to write that book. And I think the reason you don't want to write that book is you're not the kind of person who wants to look back and summarize. You're always moving forward. And so I just took it on myself um, to... to to do what you were not interested in doing, and that's the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson, searching for sustainability, University Press of Kansas. And in you know eight chapters, I think it summarizes your key ideas very well. I come out of journalism. Uh, I'm good at summarizing and writing concisely. So uh, I guess it just seemed like a good division of labor and I think the project worked out pretty well. What do you think? Well, I'm glad you did it. I can scratch that off now, and uh, <laughs> we can move on. Now I know. Now, you've mainly been a political guy. Why did you care about agriculture? 
and what we're doing in Kansas. And, you know, how did the Land Institute's work relate to your interests in society and politics? But first, I would like you to unmask those distinctions yeah. of the run-of-the-mill versus the, uh, the more radical. Well, you know, there's a pretty common distinction made between liberal and left, you know, between um, kind of a liberal position that says, well, you know, we have some problems, but if we just tweak the system and pass better laws, uh, things will work out. Uh, and that's contrasted with a more radical uh, and traditionally left position that says, no, the problem is the system itself. So, you know, the, the, the primary system we, we look at on the left is capitalism. And we say, well, liberals want to tweak capitalism, you know, pass a law here and there, regulate here and there, uh, and, and we'll work it out. While the left says, no, the problem is capitalism, the relationship between, you know, workers and owners. And this, of course, goes back uh, into the, you know, the 19th century. So the difference between liberal and radical is pretty well established. Now, there's a particular use of that in feminism, and that's where my political and intellectual life started. When I went back to the University of Minnesota to work on a PhD, uh, leaving journalism to, to try and start a career as a professor, my first interest was in the, the legal aspects of speech and press. I was in a journalism school and I was studying the First Amendment. And a big issue at the time was the feminist critique of pornography. A feminist, not a conservative or religious, but a feminist critique of the way men use sexually explicit media. That's when I met Copland, who was working at the local feminist organization that was critical of pornography. And one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, I'm knee-deep in the radical feminist critique, not only of pornography, but of men's sexual exploitation of women more generally, of sexual violence. We can talk about the difference between liberal feminism and a more radical feminism. Radical feminism looked at the way men control women, especially women's bodies, uh, the way that men claim control over women's reproductive power and women's sexuality. And radical feminists say that's at the core of the subordination of women. Now, I know I'm going on at length, but let me say one more thing. Uh, the radical feminist position was concerned not only about the, what I would call the domination subordination dynamic in the sex gender system, the way that men dominated women. They were interested in that domination subordination dynamic across society because, of course, gender discrimination, gender oppression is not the only kind of power at work in the world. There's racial oppression. There's the class oppression in capitalism. And of course, on a global scale, there's a first world domination of the developing world. So for me, radical feminism was not just a way to understand the sex gender system. It was a way to understand power more generally. And that domination-subordination relationship became central in the way I thought about the world. Now, what's that got to do with the Land Institute, agriculture, ecology? Well, in some sense, the foundational relationship of domination and subordination is that human claim to dominate the world. Literally, the human claim to be able to own the world. And as you point out in your work, that starts with agriculture. And so as I made my way through all of these different issues over several years, it was not only the specific 
you know, issue of the day that captured my attention, but the the connections, the the framework. And that's how it all comes together for me. Now, I think that makes perfect sense. Not everybody, of course, agrees with me. But I think that's the way to understand the modern dilemma, the the way we have accepted this domination subordination dynamic as as inevitable, you know, almost as natural. And we're not going to make much progress on any of it if we can't come to terms with our role in the larger living world, if we can't make peace with the planet. So to me, it's all of the same kind. Well, that's useful. And uh, it's important. I'm working on the problem of changing our minds and the necessity to do so. And we're thinking about climate change and how hard it is for us to move from uh, the use of fossil fuels and and also the destruction of the earth generally. The great biologist Ernst Mayer said that the best scientists change their mind the most often, and uh, but he thought scientists generally uh, change their mind most often. The problem of changing our minds, especially at this time when there's a necessity to do so. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, I wish I, I had something sensible to say about that. I've changed my mind many times, uh, sometimes in very fundamental ways, when presented with what I thought was a more compelling way to understand the world. So I mentioned working on the feminist critique of pornography. Well, I didn't start out embracing that critique. I started out with a pretty traditional defense of pornography that that men often put up. But it was exposure not only to the evidence, but being exposed to people who thought differently than I did and taking them seriously. What makes some people more open to uh, alternatives and, and to shifting? I don't know. It's like most things in human psychology. Uh, we, we're kind of, you know, flying by the seat of our pants. The one thing we do know and this is true of me and you and everybody, is that we want to pursue these questions rationally. That is, we want to marshal evidence and logic and come to conclusions that we can defend and conclusions we can explain to others. That's basic intellectual life. But we all know that for all that rational capacity, we're all basically irrational, highly emotional. We realize that we often aren't the best judge of our own internal thought processes. Uh, we all can look back at our lives and realize when we were wrong and when we didn't understand that we were wrong and didn't understand why we were wrong about ourselves. We can all look back and see where other people had a better view of us than we had ourselves. We're a mess as a species. Uh, but we do have that rational capacity. We do have that ability to step back and think about evidence and logic. In my teaching, I tried to acknowledge that we were a mess. We were as much irrational as rational and simply suggest to students that that doesn't mean we're condemned to acting irrationally all the time. We can try to do our best. I like to think I've tried to do my best. And as you point out, that means sometimes you have to realize you were wrong. Uh, I, I couldn't even begin to make a list of all the things I've been wrong about in my life in which I have changed my mind. 
Uh, one was about the nature of rural America. I grew up in town and I thought all this talk when I was in my 20s, I thought I was pretty smart. And I thought all this talk about saving the family farm was just nostalgia. I thought that was an inability to realize that the world was changing, economics changed, and all the people like you and Wendell Berry talking about the family farm just were, were operating uh, out of a reluctance to deal with the reality of the world. And then I had to understand that, no, <laughs> you were the ones who had the, the, the reality. Uh, you were the ones thinking clearly about how you create a sustainable agriculture. What does a sustainable rural culture really look like? And, you know, in a matter of years, I came to, you know, argue for precisely the position I had previously rejected. Well, why was that? Well, I, I think there was evidence that was moving me, but I also think it was maybe something about your authenticity. Um, reading a Wendell Berry novel and feeling this is an authentic expression of a love for the land, a love for other people, and a real desire to, to get in right relation with the ecosphere. Uh, who knows? I, I realize I didn't answer your question because I didn't have an answer. And I learned in teaching, if a student asks a question you can't answer, just talk till they're tired of listening to you. <laughs> well, uh, well what, what you're saying is that you moved from this being a matter of mere nostalgia to the practical necessity uh, that you, were, you had moved to some kind of a rational level. And um, I think that has been the problem for most of this country. In fact, most of the industrialized world has yet to see the practical necessity of what we are thinking about with respect to a rural community life. Well, there's a, as part of all of this, as part of the changing of our minds, another category is the problem of reassertion um, that um, we need to address. I mean, by that is that um, you think you have a grip on the problem. You think you have diagnosed it. And then you set out to operate in a different sort of way, but it has a way of reasserting itself. I remember at Prairie Fest during one of your talks, you made that point. Uh, you had been thinking about this problem of getting locked in too tightly to a way of thinking. And you made a pledge to the audience at Prairie Festival that year. You said, for the next year, I am going to, to consider the problem of reassertion, meaning that you yourself were perhaps too locked in. It was just a good reminder that no matter how right we may think we are, and in fact, even how right we may be, we may have the correct framework and the right analysis. If all we ever do is reassert that analysis, no matter how correct it is, we don't grow as an individual. The movement we may be part of doesn't grow. We don't start to think in creative ways. We just reassert. I spent 26 years at the University of Texas, which I'm very grateful for. I loved my students. I loved my job. But boy, you saw a lot of reassertion at the university. There was a certain claim to knowledge people would make, and then that became their career, you know, reasserting that claim. Uh, and that was never attractive to me. It seemed kind of boring to, 
you know, do work when you were young and then just keep doing that same thing over and over again. For you to say you were going to take on this problem of reassertion for yourself really had an impact on me. It reminded me to do the same, to remember that uh, we don't always have the answer. And even when we do, we should be thinking in new ways about it. So uh, I think, you know, you look around in contemporary America, you see a lot of reassertion. People convinced they have the proper approach and digging in. Uh, you know, some people would say that's the problem of politics right now as people are dug in. They're not listening. We're, you know, you hear all this talk about polarization and paralysis. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit. Why do people get locked in? And I think probably there are a lot of different reasons depending on the person, but I think the most important one is fear. People are afraid. And the more we get afraid, the more we stay locked in. And there's a lot to be afraid of in the world. We have intractable ecological problems, problems that are not going to be solved easily, maybe never solved at all. Uh, we've got a high energy society that we cannot continue anymore. We've got too many people on the planet. Uh, we have enduring problems around sexism and racism and the domination of the wealthy over the, the poor and working people. We've got a global inequality. I mean, we got a lot of problems. And I think that when people are afraid, they tend to, to dig in. And um, that's, of course, precisely the time we need to expand our thinking is when we are realizing how deep these problems are. Mm -hmm. um, we have those that say, trust in science. Some are saying, and God we trust. So what do we mean when we say, in God we trust? And is there something wrong with believing too much in science? We got these two contrasts here. Trust in science, believe in science, believe in God. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I identify as a Christian. Although not a traditional Christian, I don't accept the supernatural claims of that particular faith tradition. I don't think that God actually names an entity in the world or a, a force in the world. I don't think there was a resurrection in a literal historical sense. But I do recognize that I come out of a Christian culture, that the stories of the Christian and Hebrew Bibles are the stories I grew up with. And that for better or worse, that's who I am. A lot of more conventional Christians challenged that designation. They said, what right do you have to call yourself Christian? You don't believe in God. And I said, let's be clear here. You define God, and I'll tell you whether I believe in that idea of God or not. Well, that usually ended the conversation because people have a hard time defining God. You know, the term God means different things to different people, but it tries to name something that is beyond our rational capacity to understand about the world. So let's go back to this phrase, in God we trust. If in God we trust means that I believe there is a, a God that is a, you know, some form of a person or a force or an entity in the world that actively directs the world, well, no, I don't believe in that. And if you trust in that God, I think you are going to find your trust is misplaced. On the other hand, if in God we trust means, listen, we humans, we're pretty smart, but we don't know everything. In fact, there's a lot more that we don't know than we do know. Uh, and we better trust in a force beyond 
us as individuals. If we are going to trust in God, what we're trusting in is the capacity of the human being to come together in a loving community, to treat each other decently, and to see that there is that bigger force. Now, if that's what we mean by in God we trust, well, that's fine with me. So, like anything else, you know, definitions matter a lot. Now, what about science? Well, you know, I'm a product of the Enlightenment. Uh, I believe that the scientific method that came out of the, the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution is important, and we have to hold on to it. We have to realize that while science has created a lot of problems, after all, you know, the chemicals that uh, now present a, a toxic threat to our own lives are the products of science. But that the method by which science helped us understand the forces of the world, well, that's proved pretty reliable. So, you know, I believe in that scientific method, but I don't believe that it tells us everything we need to know about ourselves and our lives, nor do I think we can trust it without some skepticism. Now, I think those are pretty common sense approaches to being, you know, alive in 2021, recognizing that the last 500 years of modern science and the Enlightenment have changed the way we understand the world, largely for the better, but with often very negative consequences, and that we better not let go of our ability to think beyond science, that we better not let go of the recognition that we don't have all the answers. Now, you know, going back to the book I wrote about your thinking, the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. Well, I've just touched on several things that you've been talking about for a long time. The importance of acknowledging ignorance. You, you talk about an ignorance-based worldview, and I, I sum that up in the book, about how we have to recognize that we are more ignorant than knowledgeable, that science has helped us learn a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything we need to know. That's, you know, coming straight out of the work you've been doing for the last 30, 40 years. Jay Forrester wrote a piece entitled The Counterintuitive Behavior of Social Systems. Now, that is a striking title. What do you suppose Forrester is thinking when he talks about the counterintuitive behavior of social systems. This relates directly to the limits of human knowledge. So we've created these complex societies, you know, hundreds of millions of people living under one government, um, economies that are so complex, no one person can understand them. And then we run into problems, not surprisingly, because as I said earlier, as you've been pointing out for a long time, we didn't uh, evolve as a species to live in societies of hundreds of millions of people. We're a species out of context. We evolved in small band-level hunting and gathering societies, probably no more than 50, 100 at the max. Well, there's a big difference between living in a society with 50 people and living in a society with 50 million people. Now, we think we're so smart that we can manage that society of 50 million people. We can't. Okay, so we've got systems complex beyond the scope of our capacity to manage. We create problems, then we try and solve those problems, and it's not surprising that the solutions don't often fix the problems. Sometimes, in fact, they make the problems worse. 
Um, you know, uh, probably the most important example of this, moving into that uh, relationship between humans and the environment, is the Green Revolution. You've been a critic of the Green Revolution, as have others. There's a whole lot of us. Uh, there can be food shortages. So along comes a group of human beings who say, well, we can use technology. We can use synthesized fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. Uh, we can do plant breeding to create new strains of crops. And we can increase yields. Okay, well, that's good. And in fact, that happened. Uh, everybody who knows the story of Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolutions knows that those technological innovations dramatically expanded yields in the post-World War II era, doubling, tripling, sometimes quadrupling yields per acre. All right. Well, that's all to the good. We've solved the problem, except we haven't solved the problem because all of that agriculture is now even more dependent on fossil fuels. It's uh, even more dependent on irrigation that sometimes is in short supply. It increases soil erosion. And as you pointed out, um, I remember when I first heard you say this, you say by the first world taking the green revolution into the third world, all we've done is make third world agriculture as brittle, as fragile as first world agriculture. So there you go. Um, People of good faith used the technology of the moment to try to create a solution to a problem. Who, who doesn't want to feed hungry people? But all we've done is make the agricultural system more fragile. We're more at risk. What was imagined as a solution becomes uh, simply an even greater problem. So we have the faith in the Christian a tradition that we're supposed to have. And then we have in science the need for the verifiable. Uh, so it seems rather easy to say, well, of course we want everything to be verifiable. Uh, well, do we? Uh, is there a place for faith? This is a kind of a consideration that I think we are increasingly have to face as we think about the necessity to downpower. Well, I'm going to go to some place that doesn't seem like an obvious starting point, which is something you've said for a long time and uh, which I explore in, in the book about your, your thought. You're asking the question, what is life? I think you came up with a, a good way to keep us focused. You said, life is the scramble for energy-rich carbon. I remember when I first heard you say that, I thought, damn, that's right. That's exactly right. Now, why is that important? Well, because that reminds us of our, our animal nature, that we are, in fact, an organism. And that no matter how you know sophisticated we get in our systems, whether they're theological systems or scientific systems, in the end, we're still this animal scrambling around for all of that energy-rich carbon. Okay, so how are we going to manage that? Well, we're going to manage it partly by harnessing our rational capacity to understand the world, understand our own struggle for carbon. We're going to recognize that that rational capacity doesn't answer all our questions, so we're going to 
We're going to have to, at some point, give over to a certain kind of faith, a faith in each other, a faith in our ability to persevere, you know, a faith in the capacity of love to give our lives meaning. All of this is, you know, as you would say, it's just a big soup. Uh, We try to make, you know, sharp lines between the rational and the irrational, between science and faith. Uh, But when we step back, we realize we're just animals scrambling around trying to make sense of the world. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean I think all systems are equally valuable. As I've said, I think the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution brought to human beings a capacity that is really quite stunning, our capacity to understand the forces that make this world work. Uh, But that isn't going to answer everything. So, is there a place for faith? Well, there's certainly a, a place for faith in each other, faith for all of us to overcome the worst of our nature and, and behave decently to each other. Uh, there's certainly lots of evidence that human beings can be indecent on a regular basis, so there's always a certain faith that our capacity for decency will win out in the end. Is that faith? Well, it's not faith in a, a supernatural claim. But it's a faith in, in myself, a faith in you, a faith in other people that I can't justify only on evidence and logic. So your question leads me to, to just want to recognize that we're all kind of making it up as we go along. We're all doing the best we can. That's an inadequate answer, but all of our, our answers are inadequate in some sense. And that goes to another thing that I think is central in your work, which I try to bring out in the book, is the importance of humility. Humility not only as an individual to recognize that you and I don't have all the answers, but humility as a species to recognize the limits of the human to understand all of this. And so limits are another big theme in this book, uh, And of course, that's important because we live in a society that's telling us there are no limits, no limits to economic growth, no limits to technological innovation, no limits to anything. Well, there are limits, and that goes back to the fact we're organisms. We're organic creatures in a finite world, which means there are limits, not only limits to consumption, but limits to our own capacity to understand. So once again, you've asked an important question that I've avoided by just talking a long time. So I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this, talking a long time to avoid good questions, I think. Robert, we appreciate the richness of your insights. You are with us at the land. You have chosen to engage with those of us here at the Land Institute in a common effort. Uh, And you do that at no cost to the Land Institute. And so maybe my last question is this. What's up with you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I used to uh, tell a joke that I went into journalism as a young person because I wanted to be around critical thinking people. And I always said that was my first disappointment, that, that journalism wasn't necessarily a place for critical thinking. So then I said, uh, I still wanted to be around critical thinking people. So I went into uh, university life and that was my second big disappointment. (laughs) Um, 
for whatever reason, all my life, I've, I've been wanting to be around people who pushed, who didn't accept whatever the conventional wisdom was. And there's a lot of good journalism in the world doing that, uh, but I wasn't satisfied there. There's a lot of good critical thinking in the universities, of course, but I wasn't satisfied there. So I retired at the age of 60. I think I finally found a, a kind of more natural home for me with the Ecosphere Studies program at the Land Institute. And that goes back to, I think, some, some principles, again, you've been talking about for a long time and that I summarize in that book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson. You've said for a long time that we need to force knowledge out of its categories, that we've become too specialized in the way we approach these questions. Well, look at the Ecosphere Studies program and the, and the folks you've assembled. Uh, there's a literature scholar. There's a plant breeder. There's a philosopher. There's you, a geneticist, and me, a journalist. Uh, we also have an economist working with us. I, basically, uh, you approach things not by asking, well, what discipline is important here? But by asking, what questions do we need to feature? And how do we get out of those silos that you see in the university? Well, that's always intuitively made sense to me. And the Land Institute is a place where that kind of work has always been going on. And I think it's because of the example you set. Now, uh, there's no guarantee that the problems that we're talking about have solutions. But there's a certain excitement in approaching those problems head on without, you know, trying to um, water down the nature of the crisis, without trying to soft pedal just how dire the situation is. And I think you're right that if there are solutions, they're going to be by moving from a purely human-centric approach to an ecocentric approach. We're not going to solve our problems till we recognize that we are part of a larger living world. Well, I think that's at the core of the Land Institute and the way that you have tried to reimagine agriculture in a way that can both feed people and keep us in some sort of right relation to the planet. Um, I think that that's going to involve science. It's going to involve the social sciences. It's going to involve the humanities. And that's the kind of atmosphere one sees at the Land Institute. Um, you know, let's go back to where... I said I first got hooked on this approach, and it was listening to your Prairie Festival talks. Your writing is powerful. Your analysis in writing is compelling. But it was really listening to those tapes, uh, tapes not only of your talks, but of other speakers at Prairie Festival, that really engaged me. For those who've never visited the annual Prairie Festival at the Land Institute, it's quite a striking scene. You've got a big open barn. No matter what the weather, we're all sitting, you know, without uh, uh, climate control. Uh, people sitting in a barn for six, eight hours a day listening to people talk. Uh, well, what would bring hundreds of people to central Kansas to sit in a barn to listen to a bunch of lectures? Well, it's that sense that something important is happening at the Land Institute. Um, and I think that's largely a, a product, not just of your work, but of the, the atmosphere you created for others to do work. And that's what I was really trying to capture in the book, is the framework that not only 
helps us understand your point of view, but encourages us to develop our own. Yeah. So Ecosphere Studies is the current embodiment of that. Will it solve all of the problems of the human species? No. Will it make some progress? I hope so. But whatever progress we do make, I know that along the way, it's invigorating. I'm retired. I have a pension. I could, you know, play golf all day if I wanted to. Of course, I'd have to learn to play golf first. But to me, it's much more invigorating to wrestle with problems that may not have solutions, to continue to try and challenge myself. Yeah. And if there's one thing about the Land Institute, it always challenges us. Robert Jensen's book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, Searching for Sustainability, which summarizes Wes's key ideas over the past half century, is available now from University Press of Kansas. Also, Wes Jackson's book, Hogs Are Up, Stories of the Land with Digressions, also from UPK, is available now as well. Thank you for listening to Podcasts from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. For more information about their work, just search for each of their names online. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember to tell your friends to look for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks also to our partners, the New Perennials Project and the Land Institute. For more information or to make a donation, go to landinstitute.org. This podcast is produced by Bill Vitek, Bob Sly, Robert Jensen, and me, Michael Johnson. Music and audio production services are provided by Marcelo Radulovich at Titicacaman Studios. This has been a production of Perennial Films. Mm-hmm.